When I was growing up in the church, it was not with intention. I think it was just, I don't know, the way we kind of presented Jesus. Is that I thought Jesus was a whole lot like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I thought he wore a cardigan. He had to. All nice men do. And I thought he was really kind, soft-spoken. And, and I don't know why. I just, that's, that's my imagery is Mr. Rogers and Jesus looked a lot the same. When I started reading the Bible, I was like, wow, Jesus, you're no, more, you're no Mr. Rogers. Um, and in fact, we grew up with kind of an, a word, um, and you probably had the same in your family, that there were certain people who were button pushers. You know, they, they knew how to get in your chest and provoke. And you, you probably had a child like we did that did that. And it um, was always kind of slightly wreaking havoc. Well, I would say in, in a different way, probably different motive, Jesus really was a button pusher. And in this chapter, he did just that. We have to dip back into chapter 8 really to understand the context of 9. Chapter 8 has Jesus making this claim, I am the light of the world. And where he makes it is really significant. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles. And every evening at the Feast of Tabernacles, they would raise these lights. And then at the very end, when it was all coming to a close, these torches would go off. And they would be in front of the temple. And they would go all the way to the height of the temple. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus comes in to that setting and he says to them I am the light of the world and he inferred exactly what he wanted to and you are as dark as they come well this ticked these guys off it did I mean it infuriated them and they came and they made this statement our father is Abraham how can you tell us that we're from the darkness we're from Abraham's tribe and Jesus comes back to them pushes them in the chest again said if you guys were from Abraham you wouldn't be trying to kill me and then he decides to ramp it up a whole nother level and he says to them, I am from above and your father, your home address is hell. Well, at this point, these guys lost their minds. They did. Because not only was Jesus claiming to be light and saying that they are from the darkness, he's claiming that he's from the Father who is in heaven and, they, and, and insinuating and directly telling them that their father was Satan himself. And at this point, they were losing their mind. Jesus comes along, again, seamlessly. We haven't left the setting and as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth, chapter 9, verse 1. We're still coming off of the heels. The religious leaders have not left. They're all gathered there. And Jesus comes up and he stands, I believe, in front of this blind man. Now again, the average person in this day traveled, on average, no more than about 20 miles from their home their entire life. Some would go further, but the average didn't travel that far. So it's safe to say that they've been by this gentleman no less than a dozen to a hundred plus times. They knew him. And Jesus is walking along with his disciples and he comes up to this place and he pauses for a moment, just long enough. Don't know how long it is, but it's long enough for the rabbi, or excuse me, for the disciples to look to, their, to, to the Lord and say, hey, rabbi, 
Who sinned? Now, why would they ask that question? It's because we ask that question all the time. We are. We are always looking for causality. We're always looking for what caused this. And we kind of have this fundamental belief that the reason why, just like this guy, is blind is because somebody sinned. It's the very thinking that happened in Job. Job's wife and his friends came to him and said, Job, the reason why you're having this problem is because there's some sin in your life. If you'll just repent and own it, then you can get on with life and it'll turn better. And sometimes whenever people have catastrophe in their life, we're always looking for that cause. When a child walks away from the Lord, then there's always somebody who said, you know, I told you you shouldn't let your kid read Harry Potter. That stuff took him straight to hell. And we are looking for those reasons because in our thinking, the law of linearity is always connected between that what you do and the result. So they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, who sinned? Him or his parents? Because they even had a belief that if you were a woman and your child was pregnant and you sinned, that that can affect your child and they can be, form, they can be born with a deformity or it will be some kind of curse. Jesus comes to them and he says something. Neither, my friends, this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened. The reason all of this happened is so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus comes to them and he says to them, guys, you're asking the wrong question. It's irrelevant. Who sinned? Of course they're both sinners. But that's not what caused his blindness. And then he goes on in verse 4 and he makes this very important statement. He says, as long as it is today, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Now the question that I want to raise is not who sinned. We'll deal with that in a minute. But the real question that Jesus raises is this. What is the work that we have to do? What is the work that the Father has sent the Son and what is the work that the Son has sent us? And by the way, what is the work that Christ sent the blind man to do? Uh, Don't miss what the scripture says. I want you to go wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam, which means what? Sent. Circle that word sent. That's what John chapter 9 is about. What is it this work that you and I are sent to do. We're not sent to determine cause. Jesus takes that one off the plate. We're not sent to determine who's at fault. Who can we condemn? Who can we blame? That path, Jesus said, has no flesh on the bunny. Don't chase that one. That one's going to serve you no good. But the path that will choose you is if you will wrestle with what happens when light comes into the presence of darkness. What is this work that we're called to do? And what complicates it is this issue of blindness. 
I, I will use the broader term suffering. It's the problem of suffering. What do we do with it? If we don't find cause, then what do we do with it? If we can't find somebody to blame, what do we do with it? And by nature, we love to find blame. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord comes and says, hey, Adam, where are you? It's a woman. And God goes to the woman. It's the serpent. By nature, we're bent on finding the blame for who's at fault. And Jesus removes that. But he doesn't remove the problem of suffering. In fact, he makes a statement. It's kind of an interesting one. He says in this text, he says, no, no one sinned, but this happened so that what? The work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, this raises a really kind of difficult question for us that needs to be answered. And that is, does God cause suffering just so he gets glory? Is that what Jesus is trying to tell us? What is this work that we're called to do? Well, it's in relation to suffering. It's in relation to blindness. But the question is, is God, did you make all this up? Did you cause his blindness just so that you could get glory? Well, you have a problem if you go to that end. Because if God actually causes suffering so that he can be the hero, then God is the cause of evil. If God actually creates suffering, intends it, not allows it, but intends it, creates it, is the author of it, at that point, to be honest with you, you don't worship that God, you run from that God because that God's evil. To the person who intentionally creates death or who intends death, we call it premeditated murder. The person who thinks it through. And the God who actually sets up a scenario so that you suffer so that he can get glory. That is the God who's the cause of evil. And there's nothing in scripture that supports that position. But what does he do? He sends his son, who is what? Light into the midst of suffering. God doesn't look at darkness and condemn it. Now, in fact, John 3.17 says, I have not come to condemn the world. I have not come to curse the darkness. I have not come to condemn that person which is blind. Blindness, Jesus says, is not the issue here. God sent us into a dark world. And you and I live in that world. Periodically, we get reminded of that in spades and in kind of a crescendo volume like on October 7th. And all of a sudden, we're mindful. It's like, wow, we really live in a dark world. And if I've been asked 20 times, I've probably been asked 100 times, do you side with Israel? Well, of course I side with Israel. Read the Bible. When I say, God says, pray for the peace of Israel. Pray for the blessing of Israel. But that doesn't mean I'm calloused and unaware of the 10,000 children who have lost their lives in Gaza in the last few weeks. That doesn't mean that I dismiss the 20,000 adults that have died. 
That doesn't mean that I am callous to the military personnel that have lost their lives, nor does it mean that I'm blind to the context of 1982 and 1984 and the massacres that occurred then. You see, everyone wants to find who's at fault, who's to blame, and Jesus kind of steps us back and says, wait a minute. I got a story, and the story is of blindness, and the story does not tell us who's at fault. The story tells us what God does with darkness. He brings glory to himself. He enters into it. He sends his son who is the light of the world. And not only is he the light, but it asks the question, what does the light do? It penetrates the darkness. I'm much less interested these days because of Christ in finding who's at fault. If I want to find out who's at fault, I think maybe the wisest thing for me to do is to go stand in front of a mirror and look at it. If I want to find a person at fault, I'd probably go tattoo, you know, Adam and Eve's name and stick it on my bulletin board and hate them for the rest of my life. The only problem is, is that you and I have all ratified Adam and Eve's nature, have we not? Who's at fault? Jesus takes that one off the table. He says, we have an issue. We have a problem of darkness called suffering. We have sin that has entered in the world and it causes war and it causes selfishness and it causes people who are offended at anything and everything today. And you walk on eggshells around everyone. Why? Because we're all entitled thinking somehow that everyone needs to play to us. The problem, Jesus said, is not about finding who's at fault. It's asking the question, what work do we have to do? And he teaches us in this text that in the midst of the darkness, the light is sent, the light has come. We've got work to do, Jesus says to his disciples. Notice this. He says, as long as it is day, we must do the work of, notice this, him who sent me. What does God do in relation to darkness? Like the song, he runs to it. He doesn't curse it. He doesn't condemn it. It's not like he applauds it. God never applauds evil, nor should you. You should never applaud October 6th. You should never in any way say, ah, they deserved it. It's cruelty. I hope no one is ever that cruel to you. Nor should you look at the 10,000 children that have lost their lives or 70% of the structures in Gaza that are no longer inhabitable. We should look at that and say, what does light do when it sees darkness? It runs to it. It doesn't condemn it. It doesn't wash its hands from it and go, we're clean. In the midst of darkness, the light has come. I love the notation that Helen Keller, you know her life, I'm sure. And at one point in her life, she makes this statement. She says, gradually I got used to the silence and the darkness that surrounded me. And I forgot that it had ever been different in my life. I forgot it was different until she came. My teacher. My teacher who set 
my spirit free. I can almost hear those words coming from this man. I got used to the darkness. I, I was born into it. I, I, I only had the capacity of an imagining what people looked like, what life looked like. He, he'd never seen a tree. He, he'd probably felt it. Never seen an olive branch. He'd felt it. Never seen his parents. Maybe he's felt the contour of their face. And then came one named Jesus. And when he came, he, he did something that was really bizarre. I have no idea why Jesus did that. All kinds of speculation as to why he looked with mud. Maybe he wanted to endorse every six-year-old little boy who loves to play with mud. And he took the mud, the scripture says, and he packed it on his eyes. Now, my guess is, to be honest with you, this man was maybe even slightly embarrassed. He was embarrassed because there had been this debate going on and he probably overheard who sinned. And I don't know about you, but it's never fun to have somebody sit there and kind of evaluate your own life. Why are you such a mess? How would you like to have somebody openly have that discussion right in front of you? It would feel embarrassing. You might even want to walk away. And the only reason he couldn't is maybe because no one was there to lead him out of that mess. And then Jesus puts mud on his face and, and that in and of itself, unless you're a five-year-old boy, that just seems disgusting. And then Jesus comes to him and he sends him over to the pool and he said, I want you to go wash. And, and I don't know if he had one ounce of anticipation at all. My gut tells me probably not. My sense is he just did it to get the mud off of his face. Did he actually have any actual hope and anticipation and expectation that he was going to see that day? I, I'm, I think you could be speculative to that end. I probably wouldn't go there. I think more he just wanted to get the mud off of his face and get home and quit being the center of attention. Jesus heals him. And the crowd goes crazy. It does. Look at verse 8 and 9. The, the neighborhood has gone nuts. He says his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed there's no way. Uh-uh. They're anti-supernaturalists. And so they said there's no one. No, he, it looks like him. But then he insists, I'm the man. And then there's an interaction in, in verses 10 and following, 10 and 11. He says, but how then were your eyes open, they demanded. And the guy looks at him and it's like, uh, to be quite honest with you, I don't have a clue. I, I guess what I can tell you is, is make sure you find whatever mud he used. That stuff's magic. He doesn't know. He's never seen Jesus. And he has no idea who he is. And by this time, Jesus had slipped away. Jesus sees this man. It was a miracle that they'd never witnessed. And to be honest with you, I don't know of anyone to this day that has ever witnessed a person who was born blind and who God supernaturally helped them see. And maybe that should be an indicator that this is not a miracle that Jesus says, I want to replicate a lot. Maybe what he's trying to teach us is something much deeper. And that is in the midst of darkness, the light has come. And what does the light do when it comes to darkness? It brings light 
It helps people see. It helps those who are blind in their heart and soul have an ability to see themselves and to see God and to experience something that they've never experienced before. I think he wanted to teach us a lesson. Disciples, come with me. I want to do the work that God has given to us to do. Now, if the work itself was to heal the blind, then I would think that we would see this miracle replicated all the way through the New Testament. We don't. And from verse 35 and following, it seems to indicate to me that the work is much deeper than a blind man seeing. It's a blind heart seeing. And so Jesus comes and he says, in the midst of the darkness, I have come. But here's something that I think we have to let sink in a little bit, both as a warning and as a reality. And that is, when confronted by the light, some choose to remain in the darkness. There's a sense of which I wish universalism was true. I do. Being honest with you, I wish everyone got saved. I could easily, I'll be honest, with you, I could easily live with the reality that Hitler's in heaven. I could. I, I, and the reason is, is because I may hate what he did here on earth, but uh, if we're all honest, we're a whole lot more like Hitler than we are Jesus Christ. And so the idea of Hitler being in heaven, Ted Bundy being in heaven, you list whoever you hate. Them being in heaven, I, I really don't have a problem with it. I would prefer that God universally saved everyone. Make a whole lot easier for me. But verse 39 tells me something different and it tells you something different. When you read it, it says this. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Why? Because when confronted by the light, some choose to remain in the darkness. In a strange way, almighty God, who is all-knowing and all-powerful, doesn't force himself upon you. He doesn't demand. He honors your volition. He honors these individuals who come and they were struggling with Jesus and they were having a problem. And, and, and there's, it's an amazing thing, but he, he even honors some parents who side with peer pressure more than their son. He allows them. He allows them. And as one writer rightly put it so well, the Pharisees' reaction serves as a cautionary tale about the dangers of spiritual blindness. Where pride and Preconceived notions can prevent us from recognizing the work of God in our midst. The neighbors, they rejected the light. The parents, they rejected the light. The Pharisees, they rejected the light. And God did not force himself upon them. And God won't force himself upon you. He validates and honors 
as much as I wish at times he didn't, your ability to either receive the light, the gift of Christ, the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, or you can walk away from it. Why would a person reject it? I think number one, let's just use the parents as an illustration. What caused them to reject the supernatural healing of their son attributable to Christ to the point that they worshipped him? You know what it was? Peer pressure. Their son was kicked out of the synagogue and they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue and they were afraid that if they said Jesus is the Christ, they would be kicked out of the synagogue and it was more important to them to be accepted in the synagogue than it was to acknowledge the reality that my son has encountered a supernatural miracle and rather than owning that, selecting that and receiving that, they said, we'd rather go to the synagogue. And there are more than just a few junior hires in our world that are influenced by their peers. How about some parents? How about some grandparents? And there are being some people all through life, maybe you're one of them, that you've pushed off the reality of Christ is because the guys down at the pub might think you got a little Jesus weird and you know what, well, let's not do that. How about if I just go to church, slip in, give me $3 worth of God. Not enough to change me, just enough to get me out of hell. When confronted by the light, some choose to remain in the darkness. Why? Because, well, they're afraid of losing their friends. Some choose because they can't imagine the supernatural power of Christ to do something like the resurrection. It doesn't make sense to them. People tell me that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he lived a sinless life. And they don't have a problem with that. The question they have to wrestle with is, God, why would you have to even do that? Why don't you just declare those who trust in God, you're forgiven. Why go through all of this messy stuff called the cross and death and murder? And because they can't understand it, because they can't conceive, because they don't understand a God who is both holy and just, loving and just, and because that doesn't compute in their mind, they kind of walk away from it. I don't need this. I just think God is love. And if God wants to save me, he can, that's his choice. Kind of like these parents. Well... We don't really know who Jesus is. We're not going to take a position on that. It would lose our place at the synagogue. Ask our son. He's old enough. Deflected. Some people choose blindness because they just can't come to the perspective that the all-knowing, all-powerful God is actually integrated and involved in this world. And so when somebody tells them about a prayer that God answered, they write it off and say, well, it's just coincidence. They can't imagine that there would be a God who could interact with over 7 billion people all at one time, run the world, hold all of the atmosphere together and all of the galaxies in place and sustain that. They, they just can't get that. And, and maybe they even come to the point where it's like, you know what, I can't understand the God that has no beginning. Everything I know has a beginning. And the fact that God has no beginning, he's always existed, that just is outside of my computation. It's out of anything that I've ever experienced. And so because that I can't understand it, I can't explain it, I need to dismiss it. 
And though I wish God mandatorily saved everyone, when confronted by the light, some choose to remain in the darkness. And at one level, to be honest with you, that should soberly kind of cause a disquieting in our spirit. Because God will never force you to surrender to him. He won't. I don't see that in the text of scripture. I see when confronted by the light, some choose to remain in darkness. But only the faith-filled heart can see. Only the faithful heart can see. Verse 39, let's come back there again. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that what? The blind will see. How did they see? Let's look at verse 35. Jesus hears that the guy's been thrown out of the synagogue. (laughs) This is almost, if if it wasn't tragic, it'd be funny. He comes and he finds the guy. I mean, the guy's got kicks out of the, you know, synagogue. So, uh, you going to the synagogue? You've never seen the synagogue. Have you ever gone? Well, I tried to go, but they kicked me out. What'd they kick you out for? Uh, because I hung out with you. Well, you don't even know who I am. Because Jesus asked the guy a question. Let's follow down through this. It's really fascinating. He says, uh, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I might believe in him. The guy doesn't have a clue who Jesus is, honestly. And he's kicked out of the synagogue. Why? For saying I was once blind and now I see. Wow, that'll get you. That's like an alcoholic. I was once an alcoholic and now I'm free from it because of the power of Jesus Christ. Whoop, out of the church. We only take alcoholics in our church. (laughs) That's weird. Why did they kick this guy out? Because that's what darkness does when light comes in. Goes on and he, he says to Jesus, I, I don't have a clue who he is. Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I can believe in him. Jesus says, you've seen him now, verse 37, and he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I do believe, and he worshiped him. I, I find it interesting that not even the disciples at this point in their life had worshiped Christ. They followed him. There's no indication that they had worshiped him. What is the work that you and I have to do? It's the same that Jesus did. It's to take light into the darkness, knowing only the humble, honest heart is going to see. Only the person who is willing to say, I was blind. I was a sinner. You don't have to ask who is at fault. You don't have to ask what caused my blindness. I did. I have ratified the sin nature 10 million times over. If you want the problem of sin and suffering, all I have to do is go look in the mirror. I don't need to find fault. I am. And the person that Christ helps see, notice he says, I don't condemn blindness. I condemn the person who says, I see and I don't need you, Jesus. 
I see, and I would rather have the acceptance of my friends at the synagogue than having my aligned heart to Jesus Christ. Only the faith-filled heart can see. What work do we have to do, Jesus? Go find every honest, blind person you can and help their heart see. See that Christ not only is the light of the world, but that light sheds darkness. That light saves people. That light makes people whole. That light makes drunk people sober. That light makes dead people alive. That light makes condemned people forgiven. But what you don't do is go around the world trying to find who's at fault. Was it his sin or was his parents? That will get you nowhere, Jesus said. But what will get you is this happens so that the work of God might be displayed. I was interacting with a saint, a follower of Christ who's in Lebanon this week. Lebanon in the Middle East. They all know he's an American. They know his kids are American. And almost every day he's asked the question, who do you side with? Who do you side with? And it's very similar to this. Who's at fault? Who can we hate? Who can we set up as the target of our hatred? Because in some ways we love to hate. And Christ says, hey, we have a work so that God would be glorified. We have a work, it's called let's love our enemies. We have a work, let's love people who are blind. We have a work Let's take the light of Christ to the darkest place that you and I can imagine. For some of you, that's your home. For some of you, that's your neighborhood. For some of you, that's, that's a family member. You don't have to go very far. But your assignment is not to condemn them and not to give the solution of a fault. Your assignment, my assignment, is to do exactly what Jesus did. Is there anyone here willing to acknowledge you're blind? Is there anyone here willing to acknowledge, I, I don't see, I need help. And if you're willing to acknowledge that, what Jesus says is, I will make the blind see. At this point, we know he's not talking about the eyes, he's talking about your heart. I will make the blind person see. But my light will also make the person who claims they don't need me to become blind. <laughs>